Welcome to the exhibition. I'm deeply honoured to be here. Thank you to Siobhan and the Royal Irish Academy for, for hosting this. Um, I would also like to thank the, the project team that Siobhan has just mentioned there. Um, today's talk is going to be um, a, an overview, offer an overview briefly contextualising the author's themes and texts pertaining to the representation of Jews in Irish literature. It will only be concerned with literatures composed in English. Another co uh, colleague and project team member Dr. Riona Nareel will provide a talk on literature composed in Irish next week. I would also like to thank uh, or pay tribute to Professor Elmer Kennedy Andrews, the co-investigator to the project, who tragically passed away before seeing it come to fruition. I should stress that this is not a preamble to the talk. Elmer was crucial in establishing the key parameters of the project, parameters which led ultimately to the panels you see around you and the talk you're about to hear. Elmer published one article on, in the subject area on the representation of Jews in 20th century Irish fiction, but he regarded that article as a mere testing of the water. Under different circumstances, his research output in the subject area would have been considerably more. The scope and scale of the project is sizable, covering uh, the late medieval and early modern period, restoration in the 18th century, the 19th century, and 20th and 21st centuries across all genres. Alongside this, we have writings offering representations of Jews in Irish, as well as an impressive number of Jewish-Irish writers, including the poetry of Rosa Solomons, Hyman Edelstein, and Leslie Dagan, the fiction of uh, Julia Franca, who was uh, mentored by George Moore and wrote as under the pseudonym Frank Danby, and Joseph Edelstein, alongside more recognizable names such as David Marcus and Ronald Lenton. This area falls outside the remit of today's talk, as do the 20th and 21st century writers who have also written with varying degrees of Jewish interest. These include Samuel Beckett, Iris Murdoch, Aidan Higgins, William Trevor, Jennifer Johnson, Edna O'Brien, John Banville, Roddy Doyle, amongst many others. I've opted instead to provide a basic overview of the period from 1590 to 1922 or effectively between Edmund Spencer and James Joyce, although not necessarily in a chronological fashion. This will entail the interrogation of religious, cultural, and national identity without becoming overly embroiled in theoretical considerations. The dialectic of self and other will prove crucial and will play out against two key tropes, the Irish-Jewish encounter and the Irish-Jewish analogy. I think it's important at this point to establish that I do not consider Irish-Jewish to be entirely interchangeable with Jewish-Irish as the perspective of the former is very much governed by the imaginary Jew rather than by any real experience of actual Jews. Jewish-Irish, on the other hand, pertains to the perspective of writers who may or may not be responding to their own sense of a hyphenated or hybrid cultural identity within Ireland. That said, both the Irish and the Jews have been traditionally subject to processes of othering. The Jew alienated across Europe in accordance with the anti-Semitic trope of the exiled, rootless cosmopolitan, which manifests as anything between depictions of the Jew as pariah, moneylender, magician, or mysterious purveyor of arcane knowledge to the wandering Jew, which also evolved into depictions of the Gothic vampire in Irish literary tradition and elsewhere. On the other hand, the indigenous Irish have been religiously, culturally, and linguistically othered in Protestant Anglo-Irish society, and in turn, the, Anglo -Irish, uh, the indigenous Irish and the Anglo-Irish have been culturally, geographically, and linguistically othered in British society, perceived as different, discernibly alien, accepted, but only conditionally, provisionally. 
And if you think of Jonathan Swiss complaint about the difference of treatment whenever you cross the channel, a consciousness of this othering is encoded into the works of countless Irish literary figures in one fashion or another, from, uh, from Spencer to Edgeworth to Joyce, many of whom have invoked the figure of the Jew in relation to this discourse. Indeed, I would argue that the Jew uh, is principally invoked to either reinforce or uh, displace the sense of Irish otherness. Irish writers often take their settings outside of Ireland and can on occasion present the Jew as the Oriental other. What constitutes an Orientalized Jew appears to be quite complex, not necessarily fixed in any geographic sense. The Orientalized Jew can thus appear, for example, as Benzadi in Thomas Southern's Money the Mistress, set in Tangier, as Zebedee in John O'Keefe's The Little Hunchback, an adaptation from 1001 Nights set in Baghdad, or in the Eastern European context of uh, James Sheridan Knowles' Joseph in The Maid of Mariendorf, set in Prague, or Dion Bosico's uh, Kopeck in The Queen of Hearts, set in Poland. I mention these works briefly because although composed by Irish writers and featuring Jewish characters, there is no major sense of either an Irish encounter or analogy at play. And there is no real reason for that, that why there should be so, although it is possible that an encoded reading may be plausible on some level. Writers often employed uh, oriental settings and themes to deal with sensitive socio-cultural or political topics that can't be discussed explicitly at the time. Such is certainly the case with Roger Boyle's two uh, biblical plays, Herod the Great and the Tragedy of King Saul, which invoke Jewish figures negatively for encoded political purposes. Boyle was an Irish general, Lord Brokehill and Earl of Orrery, who served successively under Charles I during the 1641 rebellion, Cromwell during the Confederate Wars, and Charles II following the Restoration. Most of Boyle's plays had classical English or Oriental settings, and all tended to be critical of the tyrannies of kingship, with an eye to the political and economic interests of Ireland. Cromwell, the protectorate and therefore king in all but name, is represented through Herod as a tyrannous usurper, Richard II is represented through Saul as on course for arbitrary rule, a matter of great political concern at that time. Boyle also interestingly features within an Irish-Jewish encounter of his own in Anna Maria Hall's 19th century historical fiction, The Buccaneer of 1832, which plays out against the backdrop of the readmission of the Jews to Britain under Cromwell. Boyle's appearance is brief as Lord Brokehill during a meeting between Cromwell and Manasseh bin Israel during the latter's petition for Jewish readmission. We have a panel on this subject. Cromwell questions Brokehill on the purported presence of Lord Ormond in London, suggesting some political intrigue or conspiracy. Ormond had, of course, fought in the side of the Royalists, but was also at various times either allied or in opposition to Boyle, a relationship ambiguous enough to provoke Cromwell's suspicions. The episode seems to serve no other purpose in the novel beyond a nod to Hall's homeland and what is otherwise a thoroughly non-Irish themed novel. One of the earliest instances of the Irish-Jewish encounter occurs in Richard Head's The English Rogue of 1665, in which the anti-hero Merton Latrun is sent into exile for his many crimes, shipwrecked on the Indian Ocean, sold into slavery and purchased by, uh, by a Jew with a devil-like devil physiognomy and temperament. The Jew's appearance, eyes, facial expression, body language are typically recounted in detail, especially when a negative impression is intended. 
This paper could have been a catalogue of such accounts. Um, the same could also be said, of course, of the stage Irishman. Great detail, or great attention paid to you know, the appearance and the difference and the otherness of these figures. Um, the Irish, the Irish-Jewish encounter overlaps, as is so often the case with the Irish-Jewish analogy. Lutrun discerning an affinity, albeit antagonistic, between his own character and that of his Jewish master, that enables him to outmaneuver his oppressor and effectively outdo a Jew. This trope entailing a form of ethnic rivalry in which the Irishman prevails over the Jew occurs several times. From George Farquhar's uh, 18th century comedy drama, The Twin Rivals of 1702, to Sidney Owenson's or Lady Morgan's The Princess or The Beguine of 1835, in which the rascally or roguish Irishman outwits the Jew in an encounter suggestive of analogous character, albeit with the Irishman more often emerging as superior in both wit and underlying conduct. Thus the stage Irishman in Farquhar's uh, drama Teak, culturally and linguistically othered, uh, emerges as a minor hero after thwarting the duplicitous schemes of the lawyer Suppleman. Um, Suppleman is not presented immediately as being a Jew, but is revealed at a crucial point in the dramatic action as being the illegitimate son of Moabite the Jew, thereby attributing his deceitful manoeuvrings and behaviour to his Jewish parentage. Merton Latrun, on the other hand, does not claim moral superiority. On the contrary, he employs the Irish-Jewish analogy self-referentially in allusion to one of the most heinous of anti-Jewish slurs, the blood libel in which uh, Lutrun compares his swindling of a young nobleman out of his inheritance to the purported Jewish preparation of Christian children for ritual sacrifice. The blood libel appears elsewhere in Irish literature, often through folk variations on the Jewish daughter ballad, but perhaps most graphically in Charles Johnson's 18th century Irish picaresque novel, Chrysal or the Adventures of a Guinea from 1760. Johnson's novel is unique in as much as it is narrated from the perspective of a magically sentient guinea or gold coin. The story progressing as, a first as the first person protagonist changes ownership. Again, there's no obvious Irish Jewish encounter or analogy, and the suggestion of Chrysal having any and there's no suggestion of Chrysal having any Irish origins. The story is interesting, if only for the coin's audacious claims to having witnessed a failed ritual involving the intended sacrifice of Christian children interrupted by the authorities, in contravention of the fact that there has never been any credible witness or evidence to support such libelous claims. So Jews have been traditionally persecuted for this blood libel, but there's never been any witnesses, there's never been any evidence. Yet Chrysal claims to have witnessed this, but he's a magic gold coin, you know. Um, Grissel also witnesses a considerable degree of degeneracy amongst his various owners and their circles. Likewise, Lutrun, or Merton Lutrun, as first-person narrator of the English rogue, continuously presents himself as degenerate, which he most certainly is, guilty of a litany of horrendous crimes and transgressions. But Lutrun is also a keen and curious social anthropologist, uh, detailing with great sympathy the societies, customs, social hierarchies, and even languages of marginalized communities to which he has at one time or another belonged. These, this communi these communities include thieves, beggars, gypsies, and prostitutes. The trope of degeneracy has a particular Irish political dimension, Latrun attributing his proficiency as a rogue to his Irish childhood, having been steeped for some years in an Irish bog. 
The English rogue, being, uh, in this case, it was born like the author in Carrick Fergus. This probably explains why Latrun's sympathies do not extend to the Irish, Head himself having fled Ireland during the 1641 rebellion, during which his father and brother were killed. Lack of sympathy for the Jews is probably due to pure prejudice and having had no real-life experience of the Jewish people. Negative Jewish typologies analogously deployed to underscore Irish degeneracies can be traced back to Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen of 1590, which contains two rather obscure instances of the Irish-Jewish analogy that proceed along the lines of the Protestant Reformation rhetoric appropriated from the statutes of Kilkenny, outlawing Gaelic garb, language and customs, um, which were introduced to forestall the Anglo-Norman uh, Old English going native. Spencer fears that the New English settlers in Ireland were in imminent danger of falling under a similar contagion of going native, and so he Judaizes the Irish Catholic other, first as Catherine Walls observes through the tripartite figures of Abessa, Corsica and Kirkerpine, imagined uh, collectively, uh, as collectively representing the spiritually blind synagogue. And you'll notice in the picture of synagogue that she is actually blindfolded. And uh, in Spencer, she, is, she becomes a Judaized Catholic and stands in contrast to Una as Ecclesia, representative of the true church, the new Jerusalem of enlightened Protestantism. In Judaizing Catholicism, Spencer is effectively implying that the native population of Ireland are to be equated with the unbelieving Jews, a common appellation, but not one that Spencer specifically employs. They exist in a state of spiritual error that precludes them from enlightenment and a place in the new Jerusalem. Likewise, Spencer appropriates, appropriates negative Jewish stereotypes from Corpus Christi tradition in depicting the misshapen physiognomies and idolatrous nature of natures of the satyrs encountered by Una in the force of the Salvage Island, which elsewhere in the Fairy Queen stands as code for Savage Ireland the Ireland that exists beyond the pale. Records of the, in the Dublin Chain books suggest a strong possibility of a Corpus Christi tradition in Ireland, and it's interesting that Spencer would appropriate this you know, sort of Catholic imagery in order to promote a Protestant rhetoric. The Jewish-Irish analogy is also invoked in the 18th century Irish satire, with Jonathan Swift comparing William Wood's halfpence and from the Drapier's letters uh, which he protested in the Drapier's letters, to the accursed thing the children of Israel were forbidden to touch. In a later letter, Swift compares the Drapier in full despondency to a Jew at Madrid compare, uh, condemned to the fire on account of his religion, followed to the stake by crowds of schoolboys, encouraging, encouraging him not to recant lest they lose their sport by clapping him on the back and crying, Stand firm, Moses. Irish writers also responded to the Jewish Naturalisation Bill of 1753, which at the time had incurred furious xenophobic protests, leading it to be revoked only a year later. The Irish philosopher John Tolan famously produced a political tract in support of naturalisation, whereas Irish satirists such as Arthur Murphy, living and working in England, opposed it with biting works of political propaganda. Murphy's two-act unperformed play, The Temple of Laverna, predates the Protocols of the Elders of Zion of, 17, uh, of, eight, of 1903 by almost exactly 150 years, 
but plays on similar paranoias and conspiracies concerning Jewish financial control and purported worship of money. The play is perhaps also one of the most extreme instances of the anti-Semitic trope of the stock jobber Jew to appear in literature. Murphy cruelly satirizes the prominent Jewish uh, businessman and, finan and financer Samson Gideon, who lived and worked in London at the time, by depicting him as Caiaphas, a name with Christ killer wandering Jew connotations. It is strongly suggested that Gideon is solely in control of the stock market, which is depicted in turn as a vile, frenzied, capitalistic ritual conducted by a uh, circle of sin sinister, circumcised Jewish stock traders or stock jobbers, as the term was at the time. The satirical tract, A Hundred Years Hence, is equally represent uh, reprehensible, invoking a paranoid future dystopia imagined to exist a century following Jewish naturalization, in which Great Britain, renamed Judea, Nova, is wholly under the control of the Jews, politically, economically, and culturally, with naturalization of non-Jewish citizens refused. Both of Murphy's works include Irish-Jewish encounters, a hundred years hence more notably reporting on the execution of two Irish rebels who staged an uprising against the Jewish elite who uh, had passed an edict requiring the mandatory circumcision of their children. Representations of Jews were not exclusively negative, even in the 18th century. Oliver Goldsmith provides an interesting implicit Irish-Jewish analogy in The Captivity and Oratatio, which deals with the Babylonian exile, invoking images of diaspora, alienation and bondage, readily, recognize, readily recognizable in an Irish context. Irish poets of the 19th century, taking their lead from 17th century bardic poetry in Irish, from Thomas Moore to J.J. Callaghan, uh, James Clarence Mangan and Thomas Darcy McGee, amongst others, would continue such themes invoking analogies between the Irish rebels and the defiant Maccabees. Moore envisages Ireland as Zion, England as, of course, Babylon. McGee uh, uh, envisages Israel and Ireland as affiliated in their defiance of oppression. Prior to that, the Irish-Jewish encounter stroke analogy became politicized in the 18th century with Charles Macklin's Love a la Mode of 1759. Macklin was, of course, famous for reimagining uh, Shakespeare's Shylock as a serious rather than a comedic figure, transforming the character from a clown into a fierce, demonic, and vengeful uh, Jew devil. There's suggestion as well that this might also speak to the sort of the paranoia surrounding the, the Jewish naturalization bill. In Love a la Mode, the Irishman Sir Callaghan O'Brannigan and the Jew Bo Mordecai encounter each other as love rivals. Michael Ragusis uh, describes the play as a staging of ethnicities during a period in which the issue of national identity was being hotly debated. The love interest of the play is a rich English heiress, which adds to the political dimension of the play. Sir Callaghan uh, and Bo Mordecai are analogous in both being subjected to respective cultural stereotyping, a process of authoring ironically fueled by the stage Scotsman Archie McSarcasm. And you can see Archie McSarcasm's uh, sort of view of Mordecai here. The Irishman prevails, successfully debunking the stereotypes being associated with his character, winning the hand of the heiress. Mordecai's stereotypical nature, on the other hand, is amplified 
the character being depicted as a garish, pompous fool who is mocked, ridiculed, and rejected for his efforts to assimilate to Christian polite society. So he remains othered, whereas uh, Macklin's suggesting that the Irishman is you know, assimilated, well, to a greater extent. But he may have been, Macklin may have been too fanciful and optimistic in his presentation of an Irishman gaining acceptance by transcending his stereotypes, as that dialogue will continue for some time to come, if it has ever ended. The representation of Jews likewise continued in, on the 18th century stage. But again, as with Richard Brinsley Sheridan's Don Isaac in the Joanna, and Don Isaac is a direct descendant of Macklin's Bo Mordecai, um, there's little to suggest an Irish-Jewish uh, encounter analogy. Although Moses in the School for Scandal does subvert the callous moneylender stereotype, stereotype being heralded philosemitically as the honest Israelite. The 19th century saw a radical innovation in the Irish-Jewish encounter with Mariah Edgeworth's Castle Rack Grant of 1800, which introduced the first Jewish visitor to Ireland that I'm aware of in Irish literature. At least Irish literature in English, that is. There have been several references and accounts of Jews visiting Ireland in the Irish language, going back through the mythic histories of Geoffrey Keating involving Jacob Stone and the Lost Tribes, to the account of five Jews bearing gifts being turned away by Turtle Brain in the annals of Inish Fallon. Yeah, the Jewish visitor in question is Lady Rackrent, recently married to Sir Kit for her money. Subsequently imprisoned in Gothic fashion by her husband and put on a diet of pork for refusing to relinquish her jewellery. The centerpiece of her jewellery being a diamond cross, suggestive of a conversion to Christianity, another major theme. This Irish-Jewish encounter is especially ambiguous as the narrator Thady Quirk alternates between describing Lady Rackrent in exclusively anti-Semitic terms, a sort of a Jewish, a heretic Blackmoor, uh, talks about her being as rich as a Jew, the usual sort of litany of, uh, of stereotypes. But he also seems to betray a sympathy for her predicament with possible suggestion of an identification between Thady and Thady's you know, sort of social class and Lady Rackrent as the oppressed other. Um, in other words, you know, Thady's class is being oppressed by the Irish ascendancy in the same fashion as Lady Rackrent is being oppressed by her husband. The proposal that Thady identifies with Lady Rackrent as oppressed other is entirely plausible, but does not sit comfortably with Edgeworth's typical literary treatment of, of Jews prior to the author being famously admonished by an American Jewess, Rachel Mordecai, for her attitude in her writings, which led to Edgeworth composing Harrington in 1817 as an apology. All of Edgeworth's uh, treatments of, of Jews prior to Harrington have been pretty horrendous. Harrington interrogates the phenomenon of anti-Semitism from the perspective of its protagonist, who as a young child has a deep-seated fear of Jews instilled in him by his nanny, is encouraged to rail against the Jews by his father, a minister of parliament who voted against Jewish naturalization, only to later have a change of heart after being party to the persecution of a Jewish peddler at his boarding school, the pains of his conscience forcing him to recant and mend his ways. Harrington's journey also takes him to a performance of Shylock by Charles Macklin in, the, in a production of The Merchant of Venice, which the protagonist uh, goes to see. Um, this performance initially holds him enthralled until he witnesses the performance upsetting a beautiful uh, Jewess in the audience called 
Berenice, and he immediately falls in love with Berenice. The novel is set in England with mostly English characters, but there is an Irish-Jewish encounter analogy in which Berenice's Jewish family are hidden and protected by an Irish Catholic orange woman, as in a woman who sells oranges. Uh, uh, it's, it's quite telling that uh, this um, orange woman is, is called the Widow Levy. Um, and she protects the, the Jewish family after they have been sort of grouped in and targeted as well during the anti-Catholic Gordon riots of 1780. Edgeworth, as Michael Scrivener points out, mixes and blurs cultural signifiers in this figure. She has an Irish Catholic background, there's the Protestant Williamite connotations of the colour orange, and she also has a Jewish sounding name. Um, this encounter also involves a discourse in which uh, Levy, or the widow Levy, draws parallels between the condition of the Irish and the condition of the Jews. Curiously, Levy is also the name Samuel Beckett had originally given to the character Estragon in Waiting for Godot, a character Jackie Blackman compares to Moses in search of the promised land. Edgeworth's purpose in Harrington is to argue that anti-Semitism or anti-Jewishness is a cultural sickness incubated since childhood and one that needs to be treated and eradicated. But her position was not always so. In her earlier novel, The Absentee, the Jewish moneylender Mordecai is actually emblematic of what she perceives as a cultural sickness endemic in high society. So Mordecai in the, the earlier absentee is seen as being the sickness, whereas in Harrington it's anti-Semitism or anti-Jewishness, which is, uh, has become the sickness. Mordecai is also paralleled with, uh, he's the Jew, uh, London Jewish moneylender, but he's also paralleled with uh, Gaherty the bad agent in Ireland, and both are perceived as facilitating the sickness of absenteeism. Indeed, Mordecai is referred to as a devil. Gaherty is known amongst the Irish populace as Old Nick. In a rather contrived plot device, there are also two Irish brothers, one working for Gaherty in Ireland, the other working for Mordecai in London, reinforcing the parallel between the moneylender and the bad Irish agent. Holding the Jewish moneylender accountable for facilitating the irresponsible extravagances of the Irish Reagan absentee strikes one as a shameless displacement of blame. Yet in many novels we hear about ascendancy figures falling into the hands of the Jews, particularly in the novels of Charles Lever. But he is not the only, the only culprit. Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu's later, later sensationalist novels, The Tenants of Mallory of 1867, Haunted Lives 1868, and Checkmate of 1871, all have prominent predatory Jewish figures, almost invariably bearing the same name, Levi. I had to actually check that they weren't actually the same character, but it just seems to be the same name used over and over again. Whether that's an emphasis on stereotyping, I'm not too sure. Jews in the Fanu were also invariably given vampiric connotations, described often as fanged and seemed to have replaced the supernatural antagonists of Lefanu's earlier supernatural gothic. Charles Lever does develop and humanise the Jewish moneylender through the character of Herman Merle in The Martins of Crow Martin, in which this character actually comes to Ireland to lay claim to parts of the Crow Martin estate secured against gambling debts and loans by Captain Martin, the prolific gambler. The Irish-Jewish encounter 
On this occasion, thus expands into a larger cultural clash involving the Jewish moneylender, the big house ascendancy, the Catholic peasantry, and the emergent Catholic middle class in post-emancipation Ireland. Again, to um, I quite like this picture, by the way, it tells a lovely narrative. You have Mary Martin suppressing a riot outside due to a cholera outbreak, and Herman Merle, the Jewish moneylender, sort of cowering, wondering why he's come to Ireland and whether you know, trying to claim this, this property was such a good idea in the first place. And we have a quote here to go along with it. Again, to alleviate the negative, Lever also places an Irish-Jewish encounter at the heart of that boy of Norcott's involving the benevolent Jewish figure of uh, Ignace Opovich and his beautiful daughter, Sarah Opovich. The benevolent Jew and his beautiful daughter also form the basis for the Countess of Blessington, Marguerite Parr Gardner's short story, The Jew's Daughter, A Story of the Olden Time, published in The Keep Sick in 1847. This short story features the figures of Abraham and Jessica Solomon, which, yes, you can see on the far side. The positive rarely lasts, though, and the beautiful Jewess is not always a benevolent figure in Irish literature, and can instead become indicative of, an, of a dangerous sexuality, such as we find in Oscar Wilde's Salome. Likewise, Sheridan Lefanu's Carmilla, although not Jewish, has probable origins in the Lilith figure of Jewish mythos. Indeed, the Gothic vampire in general has been strongly and convincingly shown to be drawn from anti-Semitic typology. Charles Macklin's Eponymous Melmoth in the classic Gothic tale, Melmoth the Wanderer of 1820, is an Irishman, but is read as a wandering Jew figure, cursed with immortality and a penetrating stare, seeking to escape his fate by convincing or coercing his despairing victims into willingly taking on the Faustian pact that has proved his own doom. Melmoth is in so many uh, respects a precursor to other classic Irish Gothic figures, within which the archetypal model of the wandering Jew is also discernible, including most notably Bram Stoker's Dra uh, vampire Dracula and Oscar Wilde's Faustian Dorian Gray. The wandering Jew forms the subject of a number of 19th century poems, from Caroline Sheridan Norton's The Undying One. Caroline Sheridan Norton was the granddaughter, I believe, of Richard Brinsley Sheridan to William Allingham's The Wandering Jew, and there's several other poems on the subject uh, throughout the 19th century. George Crowley also has a Wandering Jew novel entitled Salathiel, but again, an Irish-Jewish encounter analogy is not entirely clear. Crowley's novel is of immense interest because unlike most treatments of the Wandering Jew theme, it is largely historical, Jewish historical, dealing with the periods between the crucifixion and the fall of Jerusalem. And you can actually see uh, Salathiel standing at the fall of Jerusalem here in this picture. Adelaide O'Keefe's Jewish-themed historical uh, novel Zenobia, on the other hand, deals with conflicting matters of religious belief and conversion, which had a particular pers uh, particularly personal dimension for her. Adelaide O'Keefe was the daughter of the Irish Catholic playwright John O'Keefe, who I men mentioned very briefly earlier, and she was from mixed parentage and an Irish background, so conversion and religious identity were extremely important to her. And this is probably played out in her historical novel. But it is within the, tr the trope of victimhood that the Irish-Jewish analogy becomes most implicit in a political sense. In Melmoth the Wanderer, the character Moncada, having escaped Spain, finds himself shipwrecked on the coast of Wexford, 
and an unexpected guest in a decaying Irish big house where he relates his tale of stumbling upon and discovering a Murano or crypto Jew living as a Christian in Spain but practicing Judaism in secret. Uh, Moncada is himself fleeing the Spanish Inquisition. The Jew that he encounters is at an impasse. He's been discovered. He is naturally fearful for himself and his family should the Inquisition ever become aware of his secret. But he is equally fearful for his soul and the souls of his family should he betray Judaism, his genuine religious faith. He worries about the soul of his, of his son who has been brought up as a Spanish Catholic. The Jewish victim in such circumstances can easily be read as a commentary on religious freedom, either relating to the religious or the limited freedoms of Irish Catholics under historical penal laws and current disabilities, with real or potential prohibitions and persecutions, or perhaps it could also relate to Protestant fears and paranoias uh, concerning a shift in power that could potentially be incurred by Catholic emancipation, which was being discussed with O'Connell and so forth and the potential for Catholicism gaining uh, hegemony and developing its own inquisition in Ireland. Maturin, I think, is a, quite an ambiguous figure because he was in favour of Catholic emancipation, but he was also seemingly very anti-Catholic, so the reading, I think, is open to interpretation. By the late 19th century, Ireland experienced an influx of Jewish immigrants, mostly from Lithuania many of whom produced literary works and autobiographies. Professor Paul O'Doherty gave a really uh, interesting talk uh, at the exhibition launch on this subject last Thursday, which is, I believe, available on podcast or will be available on podcast. This era also saw a rise in anti-Semitic sentiment, often orientated around conspiracy as expressed in Patrick Sheenan's novel, My New Curate of 1899. Um, in this year, he talks about the newspapers being run by Freemasons and Jews, and you know we're being held down by the Jews who you know sort of have this secret power over um, the Irish Catholic. Sheenan's attitude and rhetoric foreshadows those of uh, Father John Cray, who notoriously led the Limerick boycott in 1904. A new dialogue becomes apparent during this period in which uh, Irish-Jewish is accompanied by the Jewish-Irish. Remember the distinction I drew earlier on between the two. And this discourse is uh, quite often pro- uh, proven fraught. E.R. Lipset, um, he was a Dublin Jewish journalist, a, a short story writer, and also a playwright, um, declaims in, a, in an article he published in the Jewish Chronicle in 1906 entitled The Jews in Ireland, that the Jews understand the Irish little, the Irish understand the Jews less. The extent to which Lipset is being serious is up for debate, given that his writing often took a humorous turn. For example, he has a short story that was uh, published in 1910 in The Reform Advocate, in which he has an Irish rebel uh, who has fled Ireland due to his Captain Moonlight activities and actually moved to Lithuania, where most of most Jews had immigrated to Ireland, and he's reinvented himself as an English aristocrat. So Lipset, you know, sort of completely subverts, you know, the the typical narrative that turns everything on its head. So, the, and he does so for humorous sort of purposes. So this whole thing about the Jews understanding the Irish little, the Irish understanding the Jews less, is you know sort of quite possibly you know sort of intended as a joke. 
The debate at the time, though, over what constitutes an Irish Jew was generating continued interest. I, I mentioned Lipset, who also uh, he published under the, the pseudonym Haltevac, or the pen name Haltevac. We also have a play by John McDonough uh, treating the subject comedically in his lost play, The Irish Jew. I don't think there's any surviving copies of this in 1921, but apparently it was, it was very popular. There's also a play in the 1960s called A Jew Called Sammy, which is possibly all, along uh, the similar lines. This play was still running whenever uh, James Joyce was composing and sending Ulysses to, for publication in 1922. It is quite possible that he was aware, more than likely he was aware of this play, although he wasn't in Ireland at the time, and it's quite plausible as well that he was aware of Lipset's writings. I think there was one critic, I can't remember quite remember his name, but he was saying that as far as Ulysses is concerned, what Lipset writes about uh, Bloom experiences and feels throughout the course of Ulysses. And Ulysses is where I want to conclude. There are many texts that I have skipped over or neglected through the course of this talk. The works of George Bernard Shaw, for example, particularly Back to Methuselah of 1922, has an Irish-Jewish element, and that would have been very relevant, but with Shaw it would have required too lengthy a digression or too lengthy a discussion, because he talks about Jews in a very, very specific fashion, usually to do with socialist and sort of contemporary politics. Um, likewise, I intend to limit my discussion of Ulysses to contextualizing it within what I hope is an emerging tradition of Jewish representation in Irish literary history, rather than getting too involved in the particulars of Ulysses, because we could be here for the rest of the week if we went down that road. What I basically want to do is say that Ulysses is, in my mind, Ulysses belongs to a tradition of Irish-Jewish representation orientated around the Irish-Jewish encounter and the Irish-Jewish analogy, which I think Joyce creates the strongest amalgamation of in the character of Leopold Bloom. So we have these rivalries, we have you know, these uh, sort of encounters and these analogies dating right back as far as Spencer, but we have an apotheosis in a lot of ways in Bloom. This is where sort of it all comes together. Ulysses has for so long sort of been treated as a standalone text. Whenever we started this project, it was like we're, we're studying the representation of Jews in Irish literature, and everybody goes, what, you mean Ulysses? You know, there wasn't really a recognition of text prior to that. Quite often we would have the likes of your Mariah Edgeworth or Charles Maturin discussed within the sort of the representation of Jews, literary discourses pertaining to the representation of Jews, but usually not within any sort of an Irish context, more often, you know, sort of slotted into a British literary narrative rather than an Irish one. So what I've tried to do today is place emphasis on the Irish context of these, of these writings rather than the British. As I was saying, Joyce presents the strongest amalgamation of the Irish-Jewish encounter and the Irish-Jewish analogy in Leopold Bloom. He has an obvious encounter with uh, and an intentional encounter with otherness. Joyce replied to a query as to why he made Bloom Jewish with only a foreigner would do. The Jews were foreigners at that time, foreigners who in Ireland were subjected to the contempt people always show for the unknown. So a foreigner who is born in Ireland was kind of Joyce's point which obviously becomes clear 
in the Citizen episode. But Bloom is no Jewish visitor, so in that regard he is entirely unlike Lady Rackrent or Herman Merle. Bloom also lays claim to Irishness on account of his birth in nationalist politics. He has Sinn Féin associations and so forth. The major, Jewish, or the major Irish Jewish encounter of the novel obviously occurs between Bloom and the citizen in Barney Kiernan's pub, perhaps the most aggressive and violent instance of ethnic rivalry so far considered. Um, we have the you know, sort of Bloom being basically interrogated as what, what is your nation? Ireland, I was born here with the, Bloom, with, uh, the citizen, you know, sort of get, uh, so attacking him with a, lit a litany of anti Semitic uh, stereotypes, calling him a wandering Jew, you know, sort of uh, referring to his hung the Hungarian background of his father and so forth, more or less emphasizing and underscoring that the citizen does not consider Bloom to be Irish irrespective of where Bloom has been born, the ultimate case of othering. Um, and Ulysses retorts that I belong to a race too that is hated and persecuted also now, this very moment, this very instant. So that the persecution is happening in that pub and, that, and that, the persecution in that pub becomes you no know, sort of, uh, you know, sort of a signifier for the sort of wider persecutions because Joyce would have been very conscious of the Limerick uh, boycotts and so forth. In fact, I think he, he, sets, he sets Ulysses in 1904, and I think, I, I think I've read somewhere that the date is actually, you know, I think there had been a, a newspaper report or something reporting the Limerick uh, sort of boycott, which is possibly on a newspaper that the citizen is actually reading in the pub itself. So Joyce is very, very consciousness, very conscious of this persecution and sort of brings it into the heart of this very famous encounter within Ulysses. So the citizen undermines or tries to deny Bloom's Irish identity. And whenever we read through Ulysses, we find that, uh, we find that it's not only uh, Bloom's Irish identity that is undermined, it's his Jewish identity also. The Irish-Jewish encounter is different this time, different to what has went before, because this time we are not dealing with an Irish-Jewish encounter such as we find way back in George Farquhar's The Twin Rivals between Teak and Suppleman. That's straightforward Irish-Jewish, or even between, you know, sort of in The Martins of Cromartin by Charles Lever, we have Herman Merle, who is Jewish, no Irish association whatsoever, encountering the Irish in Connemara. This time we have an encounter between the Irish and the Jewish Irish. So the discourse has changed slightly, it's become more nuanced, more complex. The citizen, as I've mentioned, violently refuses Bloom's Irishness with a litany of abusive Jewish stereotypes. But Bloom's Jewishness is also undermined throughout the novel. The critic Edgar Rosenberg, a pioneer of uh, Jewish representations in literature, complains that Bloom's Jewish identity is simply not convincing. It is oddly extraneous, is not recognizably Jewish. So Edgar Rosenberg, who is Jewish himself, questions uh, how Jewish is Bloom. And this is a discourse that's been going on for over for about a century nearly. You know, to what extent can Leopold Bloom be regarded as a Jew or not a Jew, or what extent? So, which is completely intentional on Joyce's part. Um, for example, he purpose, Joyce purposely fractures and problematizes uh, Bloom's Jewish and Irish identities. Bloom is uncircumcised, has a non-Jewish mother, 
and has been baptized as both Catholic and Protestant. Throughout the course of the novel, he deliberates on his Jewish identity. He wonders, he thinks about his father, he thinks about you know, the extent to which he does it. He, he's not a practicing Jew, but at the same time is identified as a Jew within Dublin. So he, what Joyce is doing is really sort of uncovering the sort of uh, the fractured sort of nature. What is my identity? Who, who those sort of literally, who am I? Whereas the citizen, by contrast, is completely confident in his Irish identity. And I, I think what Joyce is trying to do is disrupt that also, to sort of say, well, the citizen's identity is not as solid uh, as the citizen believes. There are problems with his with the, the notion of Irish identity also that Ulysses fractures Irish identity, usually through the character of uh, Stephen Dedalus. Brian Chayette, a, a prominent uh, sort of critic of the, the, the Jewish literary discourse, astutely reads the character of Bloom as Joyce's critique on the indeterminacy of identity, the novel expounding and exploring the instability of the Jew as a racial and cultural signifier. This indeterminacy, I believe, has been ever-present throughout this discussion and through the Irish literary tradition of Jewish representation that I've tried to outline, that has been outlined in the boards we see around us. Um, I think it's at the heart of the ethnic rivalries and analogies we have witnessed played out between the Irish and the Jews, um, who, I'll, I will remind you, have been subject to the same processes of othering. So the Jew is othered in Irish literature, but the Irish is also uh, other, uh, is also othered in terms of has uh, been traditionally othered in terms of British society, and there's been a consciousness of that throughout Irish literature. Um, but this tradition perhaps tells more uh, more about the Irish than the Jews, because it's the it is the Irish who have been betraying their own sort of paranoia, anxiety, consciousness of their own otherness. And this has been sort of brought to the fore with these encounters between Irishmen and Jews. You know, it, the, the ethnicity is sort of really brought to, brought forward. It's like the the Irishman and having this encounter with the Jew is, you know, sort of, it, it sort of illustrates that there is a sort of ethnic otherness at play here. And the Irish the Irishman is othered as as much as the Jew possibly has othered, except for the, with the, the Irishman typically having the upper hand, it, it could also be an effort to displace that otherness onto the Jews. So this rivalry is more or less saying, we know, the Irish saying, we know we are othered, but the, the Jews are more othered than we are, you know, sort of, uh, that sort of, sort of take on it. I think there has been a tradition of this throughout Irish literature, which I hopefully have um, brought out today in this discussion. Thank you very much.